Hi, this is Jim Lobato, and I'm the president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You are listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on the BizTalk radio show. I started BizTalk so you would have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group, which is in the business of helping the leadership of growth-oriented companies realize their potential. We do this by working with your sales force and helping those individuals discover and develop their unique abilities, and then to align those abilities with their opportunities. That's why we're known as a sales force development company. Enjoy the program. On our program today is Sydney Gabe, founder and owner of The Metis Group. Our topic is, is how to correct employees' behaviors for nice guys. Cindy, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jim. For those of you who have listened to BizTalk, you'll know that Cindy has been a guest previously on our program, and we have enjoyed the insight she has given us in terms of her leadership coaching and leadership insight. I was talking with Cindy the other day about one of my clients who was having some issues with an employee who was doing some behaviors that they wanted to have correct. And I actually reached out to Cindy and I said, hey, here's the situation that's going on. How would you correct the behavior of this employee and do it in such a manner that you're coming across in a productive way? How can you do this constructively, as they say? And I was so impressed with the advice that Cindy gave me and I passed it along to my client and it actually worked for my client. I thought I would get on the program today and share that with you all. So, Cindy... I want to let you know that that actually did work. And for our audience, (laughs) so your advice is sound. Let me give the background then for our audience. I had a client who was in a meeting. It was a manager's meeting, and all the managers were in there, and they were talking about, you know, just the monthly goals and what needed to get done and what had happened. And one of the managers became almost passive-aggressive, was not supporting the initiative they were doing, actually became rude and in some cases to the other managers and let it be known that he was not really going to support what really what was going on. And typically, maybe you find this, Cindy, or maybe you don't, but typically most leaders are generally nice guys. In other words, they're not going to start yelling at the employee in a meeting. They're not going to pound their fist. They're not going to belittle that person. In fact, my client at this case was a little uh, dumbfounded that this was going on, and he really didn't know what to do in that situation. So let's pick it up from there. Let's pretend that someone calls you and says, hey, Cindy, this is what happened in my meeting. Here's what's going on. Gosh, I don't know what to do, but I do know that I need to address the issue. So how would I address this and make sure I get the most positive impact from working with this employee and to make sure the behaviors get changed in the future? It starts with a couple of premises. Uh, The first is that we do want our feedback to be timely, but that doesn't always mean immediate. So pounding on the leader who was acting inappropriately in the meeting in front of peers and other direct reports might be timely, but we may just be compounding one behavior for another. And then we put them sometimes in a position where their only alternative is to become defensive. When we don't want them to become defensive, we really just want them to fix their behavior. One of the other premises that I find is usually true is that most people really want to be successful. I oftentimes in large groups to whom I'm speaking will ask anybody to raise their hand if they got up this morning thinking, 
how can I be a loser today? And I have never had anybody raise their hand to that question. So if we start with the premise that we think most people really want to be successful, most people really want to do the right thing, there's oftentimes a disconnect then between our intent and how we're perceived by others. So the chances are good that this leader was not intending to offend other people, was not intending to be abrasive or whatever, but yet in reality that's how they were being perceived, and that's a behavior that had to be dealt with. So I would commend the person, the, the owner of the business, who did not embarrass this leader by you know, reprimanding him in front of the rest of the team, but wanting to still deal with it in a, in a timely and appropriate fashion. Again, one of the things that's most uncomfortable for us as leaders is we really want our direct reports to be successful. Even the most dominant people that I know don't want to demoralize another person. We don't want to reprimand them for reprimand's sake. We want to change the behavior. I think of it a lot as a coach with any sports teams. And, you know, I have I've played pretty much every sport known to man. And, you know, I've had coaches for a lot of them. And all coaches give you feedback. Most of the time it's the stuff you're doing wrong and how to do it better. Yet we never think that the coach is just mean to us or we're doing different things. There's no doubt in our mind the coach is giving us that feedback because they want us to excel in performance and they want the team to excel in performance. And somehow we have to communicate that same thing as leaders to our direct reports and the teams that we lead. So we've found that if leaders, when giving course corrections, take four steps in the way in which they're doing it, we really can accelerate performance as opposed to creating a defensive situation. And the first thing we have people do is start in the first person. So if I were going to give feedback to this leader who was in the meeting, I would start in the first person saying, let's pretend his name's Jim, just for, just for kicks. Okay. <laughs> uh, I can play that role. Jim, you know, I want to let you know, I've, I was a little concerned, perhaps even a little startled, at some of the behavior I observed yesterday in the meeting. And perhaps you didn't realize the impact um, this was having on other people. So I start in the first person. I'm concerned. I was startled. I was disappointed. Whatever it is, you start with the word I. When you start with the word you, first of all, you can't make you sound soft. Hmm. So if you start with Jim, yesterday in the meeting when you did X, Y, Z, as soon as you hear that phrase, you go on the defense, right? Right. But when I say, I'm concerned, I was disappointed, I'm worried, if I start in that phrase, your interest comes up, your concern perhaps for me comes up, if your concern is really to please me as your boss. So you're attentive, but almost in a wanting to help mode. And that's where I want you more than in a defensive mode. So the first thing I do is I start in the first person. The second thing I do is describe the behavior observed, and observed is the key phrase. Okay. So, Jim, I was concerned, if not a little startled yesterday, when in the meeting, now you can say you, you began to roll your eyes or um, create um, dissonance among the members about a path we chose to go in that you 
became became argumentative by challenging so-and-so on this approach, by questioning the statistics when those were already demonstrated, whatever behavior observed. What I don't want to do is qualify that behavior and say, when in the meeting yesterday you were abusive, you were demeaning, you were whatever label. I don't want to put labels on that thing. In fact, the word argumentative I used probably wasn't the best one. But when I say you were challenging someone's statistics or you were rolling your eyes, the things that were observed, not the labels put on top of it. Because we don't really know why. Remember, there's probably a disconnect between the intent and the behavior observed. So we want to describe what we've observed. We start in the first person, number one. Number two, we describe the behavior observed. Number three, we talk about the impact on others. So, Jim, you know, I was a little surprised, a little disappointed in the meeting yesterday when uh, you were rolling your eyes and challenging so-and-so on his statistics that he had already demonstrated to us before with solid sources. And the, the problem is when you take that approach, not only so-and-so, but the rest of the people in the room begin to feel demeaned. They feel nervous about making any presentations. They're uncomfortable sharing other ideas for fear of being challenged, for fear of being, in their mind, demeaned. And so despite the fact that you might want to talk about the issue at hand, the manner in which it's done sometimes has a very negative impact on others. So now we've described the whole situation. We explained to them the impact on others. Even though to you and me and your client, it seems obvious what's happened. Right. When this behavior takes place, again, a lot of times because our intent is different, we don't realize the, the effect we're having on others. So we have to make sure we describe that impact. And then finally, we put the accountability where it belongs. And we finally say, Jim, what do you think you can do to change this situation, prevent it from happening in the future, or correct it right now? Whatever it is that we want them to do, or maybe all three. We don't say, Jim, what could we do to improve it? Because this isn't our responsibility. It's Jim's responsibility. So that's where we make sure the you part is really used in, in assigning the accountability. And the reason we do it there is when I say, Jim, what do you think you can do to change the situation? I'm communicating that I have every faith in you that you can improve it and that there's opportunity to improve it because I'm not, this isn't a reprimand, I'm not writing you up, I'm not challenging your future with the organization, I'm not doing any of those things, I'm just saying, what can you do to change and improve the situation? So I'm communicating you're capable, I trust you, and I'm only worried about the future, what can be done. Okay, thanks. We're we're talking with Cindy Gave, and our topic is how to correct employees' behaviors for nice guys. You went through the four steps. We role-played out those four steps. How important is it to follow that formula of the four steps? Oh, it's critical. We talked about, of course, why we want to start in the first person, because we don't want to put people on the defensive. Secondly, we want to talk about the behavior observed, because we, if we go into, you know, I was a little startled that in the meeting yesterday 
Johnny was taken aback and Susie was this and others were not responsive, but I haven't described the behavior, then you, Jim, are completely confused as to why those people had that reaction. So I need, after I tell you how I'm feeling or what my perspective is, then I need to describe the behavior. And discussing the impact on others is critical because many times we go back to intent is different than perception. That wasn't your intent when you behaved that way in the meeting. So if you don't realize how others reacted to it or what the impact is on others, and this could be impact on peers, on direct reports, on clients, on prospects, whatever the impact is on the organization, we have to go through that because then when we say, how can you fix that, we're allowing you to fix it, but understanding what the impact is allows you to understand what you have to go fix and why. You know, even if I had said, you know, I started in the first person and then I describe the behavior and I say, what can you do to fix that? And you're thinking, well, it doesn't sound like a problem to me <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> because you didn't understand how it was being perceived by others. So those four steps are critical. And it's just as critical in the fourth step, perhaps the, one of the most important things, is to make sure the assignment of accountability is clear, that it's for the person to fix. It's not for us to fix. It's not we it's not the, what can the organization do to help you. It's what can you do to correct the situation. And I thought it was critical on that fourth step as I went through that role play with you. Uh, you came back to certain words, and the words I heard were, you know, I have confidence that you can figure this out. I have confidence that you'll come up with the right solutions. You've contributed in the past. And then you used a word you said that this may have taken away from your credibility. How could you add back to your credibility? Yeah, I'm assuming you're using those words for a reason. Again, how important is it the context to get some of those critical words in there to make an impact? I think it is, it is somewhat important. Again, we're con- we want to convey to the individual that we believe they have the ability to do it. Finding words, finding descriptions, finding even maybe examples of things that they've done before, we want to convey we are confident. You're not a loser. You have the ability to do this. Just apply yourself. So how does this different than a coaching situation? In many ways, it's similar to coaching in that we're trying to accelerate performance. That's our goal. I get kind of frustrated with traditional HR departments who look at course corrections or what they'll call um, corrective actions or constructive feedback, which is rarely constructive, as really CYAs. You know, you got to document everything to cover your butt in the event, you know, you have to terminate this employee, blah, 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 blah. Well, I'm more concerned with accelerating performance than covering my butt. So if I'm trying to accelerate performance like a coach would on their team, that's what I'm going to focus on. Now, there's no reason when the conversation's done I can't make notes in my journal about what what was discussed and what the next steps are, et cetera. And, of course, I can have follow-up with our, our employee, Jim. But the um, – the, different, the biggest difference in coaching in this is that a lot of times when you think of coaching from a sports perspective, um, the coach will not only tell you what you're doing right or wrong, but they will demonstrate to you and show you how they want it done. In this case, we want to empower the success of our direct, re- direct report by letting them know we have every 
faith and, and belief that they can correct it on their own and they can come up with the best solution. That's a little bit different. That's the biggest difference that I see between this approach and coaching, but it could easily be called a coaching session because it's, it is intended to accelerate the performance, not just to document poor behavior. And that brings up another thought. The first time we try to take a new approach to something, how well do we do it? Uh, we struggle. <laughs> <laughs> of course we do. So I always suggest to people to make sure you practice a, little, a couple of notes, even if it's on a three-by-five card. It helps you keep your focus when Teflon Man is trying to get you off focus. It also keeps your thoughts in place. And, and there's no reason you shouldn't prepare for a meeting like this. We would prepare, to some extent, for any meeting we would have with a prospect or a client. So why wouldn't we prepare for a meeting with one of our direct reports who has the opportunity to make a significant impact on the rest of the organization inside and out? Take a couple of minutes and write down some thoughts. And, you know, if the part you struggle, you expect to struggle with is conveying that confidence in someone because you really just want to slap them upside the head, and there's nothing wrong with having that three-by-five card in front of you when you go into a meeting. I think that's great advice. No one ever teaches this when you get into management school. When you go get into management. <laughs> no. They don't send you to the management school to learn this. <laughs> That's right. They teach you about budgets and um, financials and employment law, but nobody teaches you about leadership practicalities. And there's lots of stories with our clients who've tried to apply this. We have one client that I love dearly. He's quite a Southern gentleman, has the patience of a saint, potentially to a fault. And I'll never forget, called me one time, and oh, he was just beside himself and exploding all over the place. And I'm thinking, wow, I never, I never heard the sound of him before. And he said, oh, I am just, I am ready to explode. We just lost a client that represents 40% of our business because of something I was warning my direct report about for the last nine months. And he didn't do anything about it. He didn't do anything about it. He kept thinking I was just blowing things out of proportion. And... I decided to call you first because if I call, if I talk to him first, I'm going to explode all over him. <laughs> and I said, it was, a, it was a good choice. Said, it was 6 o'clock, but is he still in your office? Yes. I said, okay. He said, he wouldn't dare leave until after I talked to him. <laughs> okay, come on off the ledge, you know. And the first question I asked him is, are you ready to let go of him yet? And he said, no. I said, okay. That's the first thing we need to communicate to him. Because right now, he's thinking, I better put my resume together this weekend. But you are not in a position to have a healthy conversation with him right now. It will not benefit either one of you, given how hot you are. And I'm not saying you don't have the justification to be hot and furious and whatever. I'm just saying now is not a healthy time for conversation. And I, I can't help but think, as a, as a hockey mom, the, the coaches for our kids, always had what they called the 24-hour rule. And that meant if you were upset about something that happened with your kid on the ice or didn't happen with your kid, that you had to wait 24 hours to call the coach. Hmm. And I think the 24-hour rule for leaders, when we get hot, is critical. So what I coach this client to do is to go back to his direct report and say, look, I just want to let you know we should not have this conversation this afternoon. It's late. It's not going to be healthy. Monday morning at 9 o'clock, 
I want to have a conversation about this with you, and I'd like you to be prepared to talk about how we can move forward, if there's any chance of recovering this client, whether it's now or some point in the future, and how we can prevent getting into the situation with any of our other clients. Hmm. And just leave it at that. And he says, well, I know he's going to want to talk about it. And I said, you're the boss. All you have to say is no. And if he says, well, I really want to talk about this now, you say no. It is not going to benefit either one of us to have this conversation now. Be prepared Monday morning at 9 o'clock. And the difference is, is we took the emotion out of it because we're waiting until he knows he's hot. And we're also telling him, we see you here in the future because I'm seeing you as part of the solution. So how are we going to fix this moving forward? And instead of him spending the weekend getting his resume together, he's spending the weekend coming up with solutions. And that's where we need his energy to be. Wow. Are there situations where this isn't going to work? Yeah, there, there really are. I would say I'm not convinced it can work well when somebody is covered by a union contract. Hmm. There might be steps that you're bound to take if you're having course correction conversations based on that union contract. So sometimes that doesn't work. The other times it doesn't work when the person's not really a direct report. So you can't use this technique if it's a peer or if it's really an indirect report. So somebody who has a dotted line to you but really reports to somebody else. And I would say the last time it doesn't work is when you've already made up your mind that this person's a goner, I wouldn't even bother with the conversation. Okay. The, The common phrase I hear when I'm out working with clients in a who are in a leadership role is well, they should just know this. I, I can't believe they don't know this. When when I was in their role, I right. figured this stuff out and, and I was able to adjust. And so what advice do you give leaders who commonly say, I, I can't believe they just don't know this stuff? Boy, that's a common feeling, especially when it's something as simple as how do you know not to roll your eyes in front of someone, right? <laughs> and yes, rolling your eyes in meetings, sighing, shooting your buddy a sideways glance are such common occurrences in meetings, it blows my mind. And common sense tells you that's, that's not appropriate behavior, or at least common sense tells me it's not appropriate behavior. Yeah, I understand the feeling that they should just know this, However, I go back to one of my original premises. Most people want to be successful. And if they're doing something that is contrary to their success, it's because they don't realize it. Sometimes certain personality styles, very dominant personality styles, are so focused on the task at hand and the results, especially under pressure, that they're unaware of the impact that they're having on others around them. And it's not until someone brings it to their attention. They never intend to leave a wake of dead bodies, but (laughs) they can do it. They can offend people without blinking. Probably many people listening to this show that will cringe when I say the phrase, you're one of them, if somebody has ever come up to you and said, are you mad at me? There's a good chance you're one of them. The fact of the matter is most people
people are really lousy at mind reading. And, in fact, we had one client whose administrative assistant called me one time and she said, I actually enrolled in a mind reading course because I really can't figure out what he wants at the time. (laughs) She's not working for him anymore because the mind reading course really doesn't work. I also think no matter what our behavior style, we want to be successful. We don't want to disappoint people. We don't want to do things that are going to hurt our career. If we can get a little bit of feedback about something we've done that we can fix, Oh, man, give it to me any day of the week. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to keep doing something, no matter what it is, if it's something that, that you can fix. The best mentor I ever had, the second job I had out of college, I don't know, maybe I was 22, 23 years old, I was one of three women in this building of two or 300 men. And I was a little intimidated. I was 22 years old, you know, and it was kind of an intimidating environment. And I remember having to walk down the hall. In order to go to the restroom, we had this really long hall. It felt like the length of two football fields. It probably wasn't that big, but, you know, and that's how it felt. And so I would walk as quickly as I could, hugging one side of the wall, all the way down to the restroom and all the way back. I had a great relationship with my boss, and I remember at a performance review, you know, I was knocking everything out of the park. Everything was great until he said to me, I got to tell you, there are many people who have come to me with the perception that you are arrogant and you think you're better than everybody else. And I said, what? (laughs) What? You know, I am so intimidated by everybody here. How could they think that of me? And he said, well, and he went to the observed behaviors, and he said, you know, when you're walking down the hall, you are walking at a very brisk, very determined pace, and you look down. You refuse to make eye contact with anyone, much less say hello. I'm like, it's because I'm scared to death of them. And he said, okay, that's that's why you're doing it, but the way it's being perceived is that you're, you think you're too good to say hello to anybody else. And I was mortified. That was never my intent. So he said, let's, let's start this with baby steps. Let's um, try not running down the hall when you're just trying to go to the restroom. And he said, try at least making eye contact with people. If you can manage making eye contact with people and making a nod, that's a good thing. Let's talk about this in another week. So I I did that, and I came back, and I'm like, all right, it wasn't too painful. And he said, all right, now I want you to be the first person to say hello. I'm like, oh, you're killing me, right? (laughs) And But I I did these things. And and I knew, without a doubt, the reason he was telling me this stuff, he knew it was critical to my performance within the organization to be able to get my arms around this. And he wanted to see me successful. There was no doubt in my mind the reason he brought this up and the reason he was working with me on this, and he was coaching me because he was telling me what to do, he wanted to see me successful. And to this day, I will be forever grateful that he invested that time in me because of my wildest dreams. I would have never believed I was coming off the way I was clearly being perceived. The reason I think this is the approach for nice guys is most of us as leaders don't want to have to be a jerk. We're hesitant to reprimand someone, and you don't have to. You can share your concern and ask them what they can do. You're just asking questions. You're not telling them what they have to do. Or So I really think for those people who want to accelerate the performance of their direct reports and want to do it in a way where they themselves don't have to come off as a jerk, that this four-step process with a little practice can be a phenomenal tool in their toolbox. 
I'm assuming, Cindy, that you go in and teach companies how to do this. So if somebody's listening to our program and would like to do some skill training for their managers to help make them more productive and successful, how would they get a hold of you? Well, they can certainly go to our website, which is the Metis Group, M-E-T-I-S-S, so T-H-E-M-E-T-I-S-S-G-R-O-U-P.com. Um, And you're absolutely right, we do train on this. This is one of the seven leadership practices that we focus on for accelerating performance. Cindy, thanks for being on the program. Thanks, Jim. This or other BizTalk podcasts may be downloaded by visiting our website, biztalkradioshow.com. That's B-I-Z, talkradioshow.com. You can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. If you want to learn the strategies and how to take your sales force to the next level, you can contact Performance Group at 800-550-9509 or visit us on the web at pmgllc.net.